Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. You know, I listen to Bickley and Murata. Terrific show, by the way. I really enjoy it. Bickley and Murata mornings from 6 to 10. Bickley and Murata. It's the greatest show on earth. Bickley and Murata. Good morning and welcome. Dan Bickley. Sportsman. Sports. Vince Murata. It's a power-packed morning zoo. Are you kidding me? Bickley and Murata. Bigly and Murata. I love this show. This is the greatest show in the history of radio. It's the greatest radio show ever. Bigly and Murata. I hate everything about this show. This is the worst show in the world. Good morning. Happy Monday to all you Valley sports fans. What a weekend it was. I am Dan Bickley. I am live in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Vinny. How are you? You sound a mile high right now. Uh, what? Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> what are yeah, you doing? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> uh, yeah, I sound crystal clear. Well, that's good. That's that's the, the magic of radio, the right? The magic of technology. Of, the wonders yeah. of technology. How about that? And our sister station in Denver helping you out. Yeah, how about that? And it, it was it's beautiful because my hotel literally, quite literally, is across the street from the studio. So I literally wandered out of the hotel across the street, and here I am. Beautiful. Bam, just like that. How about that? Yeah, you didn't have to wait on the uh, streets like you did in the New no, Orleans. No, in New Orleans, no, no, that was, uh, no, no. We're we're not repeating that. No, that that was not. That's not something I wish to revisit. So, how are all you doing? You all have a good weekend. It was okay. It was, okay. It was okay. I mean, there was there's a certain event on Saturday night that marred everybody's feelings. I'm sure. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you were well, there. <laughs> yeah, I was there. I experienced that. But man, we had a lot of stuff going on. You had the uh, Steph Curry going off. Oof. The Kings getting eliminated. You had the NFL draft coming to a conclusion. Cardinals getting rave reviews. Um, yeah, all sorts of stuff happening this weekend. Yeah, it was a busy, busy weekend. All right, so without further ado, start the show. Jarrett, let's get this going. The Splash. Splash. The stories making waves in the sports world. The Splash. Cannonball. Cannonball coming. Cannonball coming. The Splash. Brought to you by Presidential Pools, Arizona's number one pool builder. See why at presidentialpools.com. Yeah, just like Vic, the Suns in Denver. But unlike Vic, they're taking on the Nuggets tonight in Game 2 of their Western Conference Semifinal Series. Nuggets cruised in Game 1, 125-107, behind 34 points from Jamal Murray. 24 points, 19 rebounds from Nikola Jokic. Suns now 0-2 in Game 1s this postseason, but a chance to wash away a disappointing Saturday performance tonight. Tip-off for Game 2, 7 o'clock. Pre-game coverage starts at 6 on the Arizona Sports app and 98.7. Yeah, and uh, from being at practice yesterday, I can tell you that there was a heightened sense of urgency around the Phoenix Suns. I think they understand the level of competition has gone up a couple of notches. It has, it, and we'll get into all the aspects of Game 1. I thought it was a, a pretty, despite being disappointing, and I thought a really impressive performance by Denver. There was a lot of fascinating things about that game that we'll, we'll, we'll dive into today. Uh, yesterday in the NBA, the Golden State Warriors 
wrapped up the last first round series. They routed Sacramento 120 to 100 in game seven at the Golden One Center. Steph Curry at 50 points for the Warriors, the most points ever in a game seven, breaking Kevin Durant's record of 48, set in the Eastern Semis back in 2021. You know, the foot was too big game. Uh, Kevon Looney continued his stellar play with 11 points and 21 rebounds. Golden State moves on to face the Los Angeles Lakers in the other Western Semi. That series gets underway tomorrow night in San Francisco. Elsewhere, the Miami Heat stayed, well, hot with a 108-101 win over the Knicks at Madison Square Garden in Game 1. Jimmy Butler rolled his ankle but scored 25 points and grabbed 11 rebounds for the Heat. Uh, Knicks played that game without Julius Randle, who's out with an injury. Yeah, uh, and and let's go back to the first game you talked about. That you, When you talk about championship pedigree, that is what it looks like. That second half, the Warriors put on the on Sacramento yesterday. That was championship. And, of course, it was mostly Steph. But but for that team to go, what, 9-30 and 30 on the road this year and then to finish up with two road wins in Sacramento, that is impressive. I had said to you during the course of that series, I know how this is going to end. It didn't get there the way I thought that it would, but I fully expected Golden State to pull out a, a road win when, when they needed it most. Yeah. They did. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, it wasn't just Curry. Curry was unbelievable. But what Kevon Looney did on the offensive glass in the third quarter, that was demoralizing to Sacramento. Yeah. And, and you you saw it, the difference in pedigree. The Warriors have it. The Kings were you know newcomers to the playoffs who had a yep. great season, but exactly. uh, they, they folded up. They played a yeah. horrible second half, yeah. I thought. And I, I'm sure you saw this as well. What's weird about this, so we're, we're in the conference semifinals and every seed is represented yes. in the NBA playoffs <laughs> one through eight. Never, it might not ever happen again. Yeah. And how weird is it, too, the Golden State Warriors as a sixth seed have home court advantage in the second round of the playoffs? Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> uh, tonight in the playoffs, the Philadelphia 76ers face the Boston Celtics in game one of their Eastern Conference semifinal series. Philly big man Joel Embiid is doubtful for the opener with an ankle sprain. That game will tip off at 4.30 on TNT. If you don't have a healthy Embiid, that might be a quick one. I, uh, Philadelphia was really impressive in their first round series against Brooklyn. It seems like a year and a half since they played a game, by the way. Uh, but if Embiid's still not ready to go, that doesn't bode well for Philly in the rest of the series. No. Uh, Cardinals wrapped up a busy draft weekend on Saturday. Back on Friday, they took LSU pass rusher B.J. Ojolari in the second round. Syracuse cornerback Garrett Williams and Stanford wide receiver Michael Wilson in the third. On Saturday, they added UCLA offensive lineman John Gaines the second in the fourth round. Houston quarterback Clayton Toon and Auburn uh, linebacker Owen Papo in the fifth. And Louisville cornerback Catrell uh, Clark and West Virginia defensive tackle Dante Stills in the sixth round. Cardinals also in the process of signing undrafted free agents, although they haven't made anything official yet. Former ASU linebacker Kyle Soley, part of that group. Good college football player. Be interesting to see if he can carve out a role for himself on special teams or somewhere on the Cardinals. But um, yeah, rave reviews. You mentioned that phrase. It's weird to say that uh, the Cardinals are getting that. I think Monty Austin Ford acquitted himself quite nicely in his first draft. Well, yeah, and especially with the way the draft began, and we're going to get into some of the details uh, that came out over the weekend regarding Jonathan Gannon and those tampering charges. I find this whole story to be very, very fascinating, but but I, I just think the idea of a general manager executing a coherent plan is something Cardinal fans hadn't seen in a while, and, mm-hmm. it, and, it, and it excited a lot of people, not just in Arizona, the people 
people who assign draft grades, and we know how asinine draft grades yeah. are. We, you sure. have no idea how any of these draft classes are going to turn out. But just the fact that there was a coherent philosophy in place was exciting to a lot of people in Arizona. And coherent beyond 2023. What Monty Austinfort did to set his team up for next April yep. in the draft was, was quite impressive. Yep. D-backs going for the sweep in Denver wasn't to be. The Rockies cruised to a 12-4 win in the finale at Coors Field. Rockies roughed up D-back starter Ryan Nelson for six runs on nine hits in just four innings. C.J. Crone's three-run homer in the third broke a 1-1 tie, and Colorado was off and running. D-backs did take two of three over the weekend. They now move on to Texas to face the Rangers for two starting tomorrow at Globe Life Field. At 16-13, and 13, the Snakes still tied with the Dodgers for first place in the National League West. So, uh, you know, a little damper when you're going for a sweep and you and you get your teeth kicked in, but you'll take two out of three. That's a Colorado series, though. A total Colorado Two series. blowouts one way, then a blowout the other way. Absolutely. <laughs> um, D-backs also called up outfielder Dominic Fletcher from AAA Reno and option left-handed reliever Anthony Mishevich to, uh, before yesterday's game. Fletcher getting the call because Corbin Carroll ran into the wall on Saturday but avoided serious injury. He has a knee contusion. He is undergoing an MRI in Texas today, according to reports. Uh, Fletcher, the 15th rated D-backs prospect, according to MLB Pipeline. He had a hit in his major league debut yesterday. Then how about this? Two enormous hockey upsets complete in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Boston Bruins, who set NHL records for wins and points in a single season, ousted in Game 7 at home by the Florida Panthers. Uh, Carter Verhage scored the game winner 835 into overtime for the Panthers. Huge upset there. That game was nuts. I watched every second of that game, and that game was nuts. It was. Uh, just I can't even imagine the feeling in Boston today. But again, we've, you, you we've almost, seen this. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we have, and you'd almost want to feel bad for Boston, but why would you? They have good teams across the board. Yeah, uh, they've done a lot of winning in Boston. Yeah, they've done a ton oh. of winning, so oh, deal no. with it. Oh no, they only have to focus now on their uh, great basketball team that's favored <laughs> to win the championship. Right, that's it. Yeah. And last night, the Seattle Kraken in their first playoff appearance took down the defending cup champion Colorado Avalanche 2-1 in Game 7 in Denver. They move on to the next round. Oliver Bjorkstrand's two second period goals stood up for Seattle. Another Game 7 tonight in New Jersey. Devils hosting the Rangers. That game will face off at 5 o'clock. So the, the NHL playoffs certainly uh, delivering already with a, with a couple of great Seeding series. means nothing in the NHL playoffs. Absolutely. More now than ever and Abs- it never really did. Absolutely nothing. You're right, Jarrett. There you go. There is your splash for the first day of May. May Day. May Day. May Day. Uh, the Suns are not quite yelling May Day yet, but... Uh-oh. <laughs> it was a problem. Uh-oh. There was a couple problems on Saturday. We'll get into them next. It's uh, Bickley and Murata Mornings. Bick live from Denver here on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Arizona Sports, the home of Phoenix Suns basketball. Suns playoff coverage presented by Michelob Ultra. Bickley and Murata talk Suns Nuggets now. And now ahead, Bruce Brown into the fourth court for the Nuggets. Gives to the trailing Murray. Another three on the way and another one goes. That's six three-pointers for Jamal Murray, who's going to rile up the crowd as the Suns take a timeout, and this place will go bonkers. Ball just got sticky. You know, we probably shot more shots off the dribble tonight. Uh, 
we didn't move it the way that we're, we're typical or accustomed to moving it. And I, I thought we could do a much better job of trusting the pocket. Uh, when they put two guys on the ball, it should allow for us to get a lot of shots on the backside. Jazz Monty Williams, the head coach of the Sun, Saturday night following a game one loss to the Nuggets. That was preceded by John Bloom calling one of six Jamal Murray three-pointers. Best player on the floor in game one, without a doubt, was number 27 for the Nuggets. He went off for 34 points. It all spelled an 18-point victory uh, for the Nuggets in game one. And, Bick, you were there. You witnessed it. There's a lot to chew on with uh, on the bone of what went wrong with the Phoenix Suns. That yeah. was that was a just an entirely disappointing game one effort in every realm. Without a doubt. Now, and I'm going to start by saying this. Anybody who has covered basketball a long time or watched basketball a long time, we have seen this before. We have seen home teams in playoff series uh, put forth resounding, emphatic victories in game one that doesn't necessarily dictate no. the path or, or, the, or the future of what this series is going to look like. So so you got to keep in context that it was only one game, but but you're right, Vinny. There were so many little areas where the Suns were insufficient that you wonder if they can get every box checked and every little issue fixed in time to deal with it with an opponent um, that is that is certainly a step up in class from the decimated Clippers. And I and I think that's what um, that's what people are going to be looking for tonight. I I think when you look at the Suns, one of the good things that you can take away from the game is is they were lacking in effort, they were lacking in intensity, and those things are easily fixable, and I would be shocked if the Suns don't have a much better sense of urgency tonight. I would agree with that. Um, you know, Is it disappointing you come out and your first step in a new series is one that does lack effort and focus, and I know you wrote about it in yep. a pretty scathing column that you can read now on ArizonaSports.com, but you know, if you just take a look from 30,000 feet on this, what, what went wrong for the Suns? Well, everything did. Uh, you know, just just check off the boxes defensively. Monty Williams called out their effort closing out on shooters. Uh, offensively, the ball stuck. We heard it from Monty there. Um, you know, was there enough three point shooting? No, there wasn't enough three point shooting. The uh, you know the difference on the rebounding numbers was was just in immense. They didn't take care of the basketball. They really didn't have anything going for them other than making shots. And this is what this team, with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, you can look at those shooting percentages after a game and say, wow, the the Suns outshot the Nuggets. Don't put too much stock into that. There's other things that need to go right for the Suns to win, and nothing else went right. Yeah, and and the the idea of the ball sticking, you could could kind of see this happen, um, and it it was kind of weird to watch it. Um, unfold. Kevin Durant had the first quarter, 15 points in the first quarter of mm-hmm. Game 1, and it looked like it was going to be one of those games we've all kind of been waiting for. Not that Kevin Durant's been bad, but we've all been you know, waiting for when is he going to have the monstrous 40-point game or whatever. And, and so he had that kind of first quarter, and you could almost see it sort of um, seduce Devin Booker into, okay, I've got to get mine now. I've got to match what KD was doing, and then suddenly the offense just completely bogged down. That was my perception of it. So when Monty Williams said that the ball was sticking, that resonated with me because I, I, I kind of saw that happen early, and and I think everything kind of broke down from there. Yeah, and it was a second quarter breakdown, really, uh, and, and you mentioned it You know, after that big first quarter by Durant where he had 15 points. Suns shoot just 42% in the second quarter. They lose that quarter by 18 points, 37-19. to 19. They turn the ball over six times, and they never recovered. I mean, the Suns were like 
almost even in quarters one, three, and four, and put an asterisk by quarter four because it was kind of garbage time. Um, but that that second quarter was just a disaster by all stretches. Yeah, uh, Kevin Durant did talk about it. He did put up big points. He had twenty nine points on twelve of nineteen shooting, fourteen rebounds, but another big number and was a problem was turnovers. And KD, to his credit, he took a lot of ownership of that. No, it was just more so me. I, just, I slipped a couple times. I threw a couple bad passes. So I mean, I only had one assist and seven turnovers. We never win basketball games like that. I got to be extremely uh, way, way more careful with the ball. I got to either look to shoot the ball or make a correct pass. So, uh, I mean, they got 17 more shots up. I got up there. I think I got half our turnovers. So, yeah, I put that on me, just keeping the ball in my hands, not trying to make the home run play. Yeah, and there was a, uh, even the passes that got there. Some of them for, for Katie looked off. Uh, you know, just not you know hitting hitting shooters in, in stride or in rhythm. Or there was one possession, and I watched the whole breakdown video, Bick, of of how the Suns struggled with their pick and roll offense. And statistically, in terms of points per possession in pick and roll situations, it was their second worst game of the season. One of their worst games in the last three years, according wow. to this. So they really struggled in, in in every aspect. But you know what? You got to take of it, you saw what the Nuggets are capable of. The Nuggets are a very good basketball team, so I don't want to diminish what they did, but you know, are they going to get those same performances? Yes, Murray's going to show up. Jokic is going to show up. Aaron Gordon was fantastic in that game. Can he shoot the ball like that again? I, I'm not sure. Um, they were, you know, and uh, one of the things that struck me too, and this is far from analytical, but maybe you had the same feeling watching that game is sometimes you just don't get the breaks. And the Suns had so many shots that were in and out. And the Nuggets made so many shots that rolled around the rim three or four times. And I know there's not any stats on that, but yeah. that's one of the things that stood out to me was just, hey, it was one of those nights where you just weren't you weren't going to get much in terms of going right for you. Well, and we're going to find out tonight if this was just one of those nights. And it, and it's it's funny watching the reaction in the Valley from Suns fans about this. People, people who are coming at me, oh, are you worried about Denver now? Now, oh, oh this yeah. is over. Listen, <laughs> I got that too. yeah. Well, and, and again, Suns fans, you, you've got to you've got to check yourselves when it comes to this. You can, check back with me after Game Three. Then I'll let you know what I feel and and if we're worried about the state of the Phoenix Suns. The Suns could lose tonight's game, and all they've done, all the Nuggets have done, is held serve. Absolutely. So, so context is so important in a seven game series. If what you are saying is accurate, if a lot of the things that that broke went the Nuggets' way, and if that kind of evens out and you get better performances, um, yeah, I, I think that this is just the beginning of a series and certainly not the end. Now, um, a, a, you, you brought up Kevin Durant. I thought it was really good leadership for him to kind of step up and yes. raise his hand and say, yes, this is on me because uh, of all people on the Suns who didn't need to apologize for their performance in game one, it'd be Kevin Durant. I, he had 29 points. He had 14 rebounds. He had three block shots. He was a monster around the rim and, and yeah he had he had his pocket picked a couple of times threw the ball away a few times uh, most of his turnovers I think came um, at a time when the game was pretty much out of reach there were pockets in that game where the Suns seemed to be trying to pry open a window of opportunity they got the deficit to 10 a couple of times and every single time that happened either the Nuggets made a big shot or the Suns made a big turnover yes. and, and, and that window never ever really kind of got open so uh, a lot of 
things went wrong for the Suns. There's a lot of areas for concern. Uh, obviously, DeAndre Ayton has to be better. Obviously, Devin Booker and the offense has to be better. They've got to be better in transition. Yeah, it, the one thing you can't do if you're the Suns, you can't lose track of Jamal Murray in transition. That no. That's inexcusable. That, so there, there are things that they did in game one to me that were inexcusable, that were unacceptable. The focus elements, the effort-related elements, that stuff, you, you better and can fix that overnight. And so, um, yeah, I, I think tonight's going to be tonight's going to be a litmus test of what the Suns look like when they're truly desperate. Is what I think tonight's going to be. I think it's a great way to put it. But to your point too on the Nuggets and credit to them, it's not easy to hold a lead like that. Your runs are going to happen. No lead is safe in the NBA. But yep. for them to keep that at double digits, the Sun, you know, the last twenty-seven minutes and six seconds of that game, it was a double-digit lead. Yeah, that, that's dominance. Yeah, that, that, that is, is asserting yep. yourself. So Denver did that. And now the message is sent to the Suns. Big night tonight in Game Two from a Ball Arena, and of course we will have all kinds of reviews and preview of that uh, series with Bick on the scene along with our own Kellen Olsen at Ball Arena in Denver. Coming up next, uh, the D-backs were also in Denver over the weekend. Took two or three, but didn't end well yesterday. D-backs daily is straight ahead. It's Bickley and Murata mornings here on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Arizona Sports, the home of Arizona Diamondbacks baseball. D-backs daily. Brought to you by the Arizona Department of Health Services. The first step to help is three numbers away. Call text or chat 988 to access the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Yeah, D-backs Sunday afternoon in Denver going for a three-game sweep of the Rockies. Things got off to a good start in the second inning when Evan Longoria hit a bomb. Oh, there she goes. Deep to left and forget about it. Oh, man. Long home run Longoria. His third of the year. And he picked the right bat today. Big home run to put the D-backs on top one to nothing. Chris Garagiola on the uh, call from Coors Field. 463 feet on the blast by Longoria. one nothing at that point for the Diamondbacks. And that's pretty much where the highlights for the D-backs would end. Uh, third inning, C.J. Crone hit a bomb of his own. Here's Crone. First pitch, bomb, deep to left field. Curiel turns, looks, and there it goes. A three-run shot for C.J. Crone, his sixth of the season. And the Rockies take a 4-1 lead. Yeah, three-run uh, shot there by Crone to the third inning. The Rockies would get a couple more to make it 5-1. Then in the fourth, a sacrifice fly from Charlie Blackman made it 6-1 in the sixth. Harold Castro getting into the action. 6-1 Rockies, the pitch. And that one swung on. That's hit towards the gap in left center field. That's going to get down and go all the way to the left center wall. Richard can walk home from third. And into second goes Castro with an RBI double. Yeah, that would make it 7-1. to one. The lead would balloon to 12-1 in the seventh inning on a Charlie Blackman RBI double. Diamondbacks would uh, get a couple of runs, actually three runs uh, total, two in the eighth, one in the ninth, but not enough. They lose 12-4 in the finale to the uh, Colorado Rockies, and Torrey Lovello summed it up uh, pretty succinctly afterwards. Look, there's a clunker. we got we to throw it out. First of all, there are no throwaway games. Everybody, I don't want anybody to think that because we won the first two that we were we were half stepping out there. I won't let that happen. We got to find a way to win games like this and close out a series, and we'll do that. Yeah. So they move on to Texas, and a couple things to close out before we move on from from the D backs. Bick, um, you know, Ryan Nelson at the back end of that rotation. 
I know he's young. I know he's talented. I know he's in that group of the young arms that they have in that rotation. But, man, he's been roughed up. And, uh, man, they dodged a bullet with the Corbin Carroll thing because that, that, that could have been oh, yeah. real bad. Oh, yeah. That that could have been one of those one of those if indeed that turned out to be um, significantly worse than it was. That would be one of those things that would shake your faith in, in being an Arizona sports fan. Right. Yes. And, and I think in in the case of what you're talking about here, I, I do think that the Diamondbacks, the back end of this rotation, They've um, th- th- these guys are going to have to get better soon and and quickly. Uh, they're they're uh, the lack of control is frightening. Um, Ryan Nelson yesterday he, he, for a guy that got roughed up, he, he seemed to be in command of a lot of stuff. Couldn't put hitters away, and once again we're in the position where Zach Gallen is is going to be taking the mound on Tuesday, <laughs> yep. looking to stop um, uh, not a losing streak, but but pitching and looking to come and win a game after a loss. So. That three straight times he's done that when he's taken the mound. Exactly, and this will be the fourth consecutive opportunity for him, and 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 so that's that's reason for optimism. But but I do think that the 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 bottom half of the, or the the bottom quadrant of this rotation, um, they got to get better. If this team really does have aspirations of being playoff worthy, they're going to have to make some adjustments. Yeah, day off today. D backs uh, and Rangers for two on Tuesday and Wednesday, but the D backs will hit Texas, still tied for first place at sixteen and thirteen. That's D-Backs Daily. You can text your thoughts to the FanDuel text line at 620-620 right now. You've been listening to D-Backs Daily, brought to you by the Arizona Department of Health Services. The first step to help is three numbers away. Call Texter Chat 988 to access the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Arizona Sports, the home of Arizona Diamondbacks Baseball. You know, I would say, you know, I got to, you know, run the game back and, and watch it and digest it. But, you know, the early things that you look at are that exactly, getting 17 more shots in us, um, turning the ball over, getting 18 points that way, um, second chance points also, offensive rebounds. So those are the main things I can, you know, see, see off the bat. But... We need some time to digest it and see what really went on. It's Devin Booker following a game one loss in Denver on Saturday night. Booker put up numbers, 27 points, eight assists, blocked two shots, had one of the best defensive plays individually that I've seen him make on that block shot on Aaron Gordon. But uh, not enough talking about where the Suns need to be better. And look, this is the playoffs. Everything is magnified, Bick. So let's start with Devin Booker. Um, you said it early in the show. He needs to be better. For the Suns to have a chance to win this series, I think Devin Booker needs to be, not across the board, but he needs to be better than Jamal Murray. And Murray was the best player on the floor uh, on Saturday night. And one disturbing thing that I saw from Devin Booker, I thought it really affected his play and maybe his mindset was altered. Devin Booker, the foul hunter, showed up again uh, yep. on, on Saturday night, yep. and it was uh, it was frustrating because there was a couple of times where you have faith in the ability of Devin Booker just to put the ball in the hole, but he's trying to get that three point play, maybe to spark some some kind of turnaround, and mm-hmm. you know you're not even getting the basket, let alone the whistle. Uh, that was frust- that was one of many frustrations I had on Saturday. Yeah, listen, and and, and if you want to hyper focus on that, I am very much willing to do that. I, I talked with somebody, uh, a very good NBA source 
Norris yesterday who had some very interesting things to say about this very subject. And and his point was, if you see Devin Booker grimacing early on drives, exaggerating, you can see it in his face when he is in foul hunting mode is what it was is what was explained to me. And I'm thinking, OK, yeah, that makes sense to me. He has to kind of just trust that his talent is going to be good enough. And I think that in these high leverage situations, um, his mind tends to go there. Here's another thing that he does when, when he gets into foul hunting mode. If if there's a foul that is called and it's not on him, his body language is bad. And there were a couple of times where the frustration, his frustration with the officiating led him to kind of just run down to the other end of the court. And whether he knows it or not, that's showing up in a, in a official. And, and a conversation I had with somebody yesterday, it was very, very enlightening. And, and what I was told was this, is that Chris Paul and his hatred towards officiating has been going on so long that it, there's no coming back. The the refs know how Chris pa- Paul feels about them, and Chris Paul feels a certain way, uh, uh, vice versa. The, the feeling between Chris Paul and the referees is mutual, and it is never going to change. Devin Booker is too young in his career to, to, to have this be something that drags him down. If you're Devin Booker, five, six years from now, you don't want to be in a position where the refs look at you the way they they currently look at Chris Paul. And and according to this guy I talked about talked to who knows what he's talking about, he said Devin Booker has got to start loving up these refs a little bit if he wants to play this game. And and you're absolutely right. And one of my takeaways from this game was you, you know very early on if Devin Booker's in a good headspace and he was not in a good headspace in game one. And it, to me, the big revelation about this whole topic, game two against the Clippers when he and Chris Paul on the podium admitted we have got a problem with this. We have got to hold each other accountable because we are the ones who get lost in this forest, if you will. Yes. And 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 he was lost again in game one, and he's got to get out of that. He is too good of a player to, to go down this path in these big games like he does. And, and you can see the frustration. Again, it's it, it, it happened in game one on fouls that were called on, on teammates, not even him, on teammates. Uh-huh. And, and you can tell it's because he wants it so bad because he's that hyper-competitive. And these are all very good things. But he's got to learn to take that hyper-competitiveness and channel it in a more productive way. Yeah, and that's where I, I think even for a guy, and you mentioned it, in his eighth year but still young in his career, certainly young in terms of playoff experience with a third trip to the postseason, this is where a guy like Devin Booker can really lean on Kevin Durant, who talked about that after the game on avoiding distraction from an officiating standpoint. Play stronger. Um, you know, be precise with my moves, not try to let the ref get involved at all. I don't want the refs to have to make any calls when, I'm, when I have the ball. Um, you know, it, it's got to be a blatant foul. I don't want to try to sell anything, manipulate anything. I don't want them involved at all. So I just try to play my game and you know, if I feel some contact, just try to, you know, react off of that and do my best to find a, a good shot for myself. Um, but it, the rest are, can be a distraction if you focus on too much. You spend plenty of time in this league focusing on rest. Pissed off about a call, but it does nothing but just hurt you on the other hand. So it's, it's tough to, to, it's easier said than done. But, you know, if you stay conscious of our next play mentality, man, then you'll get better at it. Yeah, and the Suns can't walk away, in my opinion, Vic, from game one saying, oh, the refs were out to get us. I mean, the fouls were easy. Even the sun shot more free throws. There was a couple frustrating calls. I think there was some mm-hmm. late whistles that went against the Suns, and mm-hmm. that could certainly.
greatly affect your attitude. Really, the only problem I had with the officiating at all on Saturday was Nikola Jokic gets away with a ton. And he ended up with one foul. And it was late in the game right before he came to, came out. But I'm not going to put that in my top 15 reasons why the no, Suns lost that game. No, no. But the, they were affected by it, and that's the problem. Yeah, it seemed to me in game one, the only people getting calls were the stars. And, and if you're not a if you're not a marquee name, and you, it, it's you've just got to accept that. And, and I love what Kevin Durant had to say about that because I actually lobbed that question at him yesterday because I do think Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Uh, but again, Chris Paul's been playing for 18 years. He's not going to change his mindset. No, no, no. But, but I do think Devin Booker could learn from KD, and, and I hope that I, I hope that KD kind of can help pull Devin Booker out of that mindset because nothing good comes of it. Nothing. No. And 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 so yeah, I didn't I didn't really have any issues with the officiating. You've you've gotta you've gotta recognize that that plays and physicality that that draw fouls and whistles in the regular season may not get them in the playoffs. And you may think it's horribly unfair. You may think um it, it, you may think you might think the referees are are incompetent, but you gotta get your backside down court and play defense and just let it go and, and and I hope the Suns have a much stouter mentality because again it, it's that if, if you want to draw anything from the Warriors and they're at game seven yesterday it, it wasn't just the shot making it was the resilience it was the mindset that we are getting through this team come hell or high water mm-hmm. and that is what the Suns have to do that's the missing link with this basketball team they get thrown off of their game way too easy in these high leverage situations yeah I would agree uh, coming up next, busy weekend for the Arizona Cardinals, and it turns out to be, in a lot of ways, a reassuring weekend. We'll get into that next. It's Bickley and Murata Mornings here on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Bickley and Murata. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Bickley and Murata Mornings. I'm not going to lie, it was, it was exciting. Man, it was awesome. I, I had a that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, but I'll tell you this: I, I had a lot of help in there. Um, there was uh, it was it was in, it was tense there. That the clock was winding down there on our third pick when the when we finally got through got the deal with Houston worked out. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, some guys that I leaned heavily on, uh, Dave Sears, uh, Charlie Atkins, Rob Kissel, did an unbelievable job of, of prepping us for uh, the trade scenarios. And then even more so when it came time to, once we did the trade back, um, there was multiple spots to, to that we thought we could, we could jump. And so... You know those guys working through trade scenarios and and what one would mean and what the which one was better for us. Um, those guys did a phenomenal job and I couldn't have done it without them. That was Monty Austin for Thursday night, first round of the draft. The Arizona Cardinals very very active. They stayed active throughout the week. Uh, the draft class is complete and there was a record big like forty three trades made during uh, draft weekend. And Monty Austin Ford had his fingerprints all over that number uh, by kind of hopping all around the draft. But uh, you know we. Talked Talked Friday about the Paris Johnson uh, selection, you know, to be able to move down, then move back up, acquire another first round pick next year, 
that was kind of a coup. So I, if you're grading this draft for the Cardinals or, or, or assessing it, if you will, that might be a better word, uh, and you're looking just at what they got for 2023, you might be a tad bit underwhelmed. But this is kind of like Monty Austinfort and his staff, to their credit, treated this as a, as a two-year exercise. Yeah. And when you look at the back end, man, what could, what they could add next year could potentially be devastating. Well, and, and what they added next year is a first-round pick next year and two third-round picks, which certainly supplements what they're going to be able to do next year. And and again, I, I, I thought it was interesting just how well-received Monty Austinfort's draft was yes. and the analytics involved in that. I, I guess there are analytics that chart you know value and, and, and what you do with draft picks and how you turn them and spin them into other things. And 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 like I said earlier in the program, I, I think for Cardinal fans, the, the, the level of competence and the level of, of sticking to a philosophy was what was very exciting, maybe even exhilarating for Cardinal fans because it seemed like each day the Monty Ford experience just kept getting better and better and better and getting more and more uh, rave reviews from outside sources, which obviously makes people feel good about where this whole thing is going. And and that that is one thing that the predecessor, Steve Keim, um, he, he was not very good at. It seemed like the plan changed from year to year. It was this one year, then that one year, then it's drafting for need, and then it's drafting best player available, and it it just seemed like they were throwing darts and and and, and throwing stuff against a wall and hoping something would stick. And and so I think I, when you look at these players, I mean the draft class in some, I think it's interesting that a couple of these draft picks have legacy ties to the Arizona Cardinals. Yeah. We talked about Paris Johnson, whose father you know was drafted and was with the Cardinals in '99, and then you talk about this Clayton Toon kid, um, quarterback about how what is his great great grandfather was the Cardinals' first ever draft pick. Is great, that what it is? Great great uncle. Great their, great uncle. One of yeah, their first so, picks in uh, 1936. How about that, right? Uh, and so I, we don't know what this draft class is going to look like, but I think one of the things helping Monty Austin for it is, is could it really be worse than what we've experienced recently? No. But, no. Uh, and the bar is so low you can yeah. step over it. Yes. Yes, but, you know, this draft... You know, the Johnson pick, very popular. To get an edge rusher, Ojolari, the, you know, the, the, the consensus, there wasn't really a consensus on him. It was kind of all over the board, but a lot of people believe he can be a 10-sack guy at an area of need for the Cardinals. But him and Williams, Michael Wilson, the receiver out of Stanford, and John Gaines, so that first five picks through mm-hmm. the first four rounds, yep. I think you know they could be primed to make key contributions this year. And there's been recent years for the Cardinals where you look at that draft class and you're not getting anything. And for the first half of last year, they got nothing, basically, from their draft class. It picked up in the second half of the season when Trey McBride started to get his feet wet, and and MyJ Sanders and and Cameron Thomas did the same, but um, these guys could could contribute right away, and that's exciting. And then you look at what, 11 picks next year after all the wheeling and dealing. I've already seen two or three. (laughs) Trust me, I I, I have a problem, but I looked at mock drafts for 2024. And I've seen more than one, Bic, where the Mm. Cardinals have the top two picks next year and they have Caleb Williams going number one and Marvin Harrison Jr. going number two. And yeah. that's what I talk about, about potentially devastating. Well, yes, because if especially especially if Kyler Murray is going to turn a corner and you're not going to have to address that position in the future, next year's draft, you talk about the ability to spin picks into something greater, the Cardinals will it might really have that opportunity next year. So um, it, the other interesting thing here to me is that the, the malfeasance in this organization, particularly 
particularly from the general manager's office and the amateur hour stuff that that seemed to define Steve Kimes' later reign um, in Arizona. Monty Ossenfort's performance not only excited a lot of people, but it's but it's made this idea that we're not even going to be serious about winning until next year, two years from now. Everybody seems to be okay with that, and that to me is that to me is a testament to to the value of having confidence in your leadership. Yes, because with Cliff Kingsbury and Steve Kime, there was no confidence in the leadership and, and that is why those extensions to both of them really was just so mind-boggling to so many people and, and now at least there's a belief and again i i'm i've got a lot more confidence in the general manager than i do in the head coach and i'm certainly going to give jonathan gannon all um all, you know a, a, a fair shake and as we all are going to but but i do think just from the from a performance-based um evaluation and from looking at a coherent philosophy and and setting a plan and executing the plan, Monty Austin Ford did real well, and he installed a lot of faith in the Valley, and I think that is something this organization needed desperately. Which, again, you can't... You can't glaze over the fact, too, that the weekend started on Thursday night before the first pick of the draft was made. You're like, oh, no, here we go again. A tampering charge, honestly. you got to swap picks with Philadelphia because of that. Um, but, you know, a nice rebound job by yeah, Mike Yeah, And, and, and I'd like to talk about that for a minute, if, if, if you don't mind. There's a couple things in reading that story that that was posted a couple of days ago in the Philadelphia Inquirer that, that claimed the Eagles are furious with Jonathan Gannon. I think there were a few things in that story that, that, that bear repeating here. And that is number one, if the Cardinals did indeed self-report this violation, then why did Jonathan Gannon feel compelled to lie about everything the way he did? Uh, Does anybody have any answers for that? Because if you self-report, if you self-reported this, then then you know that this is going to become public at some point in time. Maybe you didn't want to talk about it until it was settled. Okay. You know, you didn't. It's sort of like when a case is ongoing, you don't want to sort of like right. put out any new information until it's settled. The idea that Michael Bidwell and Jeffrey Lurie were negotiating compensation right up until the draft, I thought was striking. Right, uh-huh. and part of me wonders exactly what the Eagles' motivation in all of this was, because for the Eagles to contend that Jonathan Gannon was distracted and the Cardinals were the source of his distraction, and that distraction led his defense to be annihilated in the Super Bowl, you can take that story and just keep walking. I, I don't buy that for a minute. If 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 you if you as a football coach, if you can't do a Zoom call with a with a potential future employer. And then get – let me rephrase that. A football coach in any environment has plenty of time to divert his attention for what a half hour, whatever that Zoom call was. So for the Eagles to insinuate that the Cardinals threw the Eagles off their Super Bowl path and demand compensation for it, I think I think that's disingenuous. I think they use the moment to, to try to extract something from the Cardinals. And, and, and why two owners were negotiating this instead of the league handing down a penalty – I found that to be kind of strange. Yeah, it's not something I can ever remember happening before. Uh, did you, are there, is there any historical examples of this I've, happening and that, I've and that never being the resolution? Never seen that before. And so you just wonder why, why the Eagles 
just it, it felt compelled to push that issue the way they did. Now, and again, the Cardinals, they should have known better. Monty Austin Ford should have known better. Yeah, they are in the wrong here. But just the details of how this thing unfolded struck me as very, very strange. I, I had the same exact reaction you did, Big. Coming up next, a lot to correct for the Phoenix Suns in Game 2 against Denver. We'll go over that list of things to improve upon next. It's Bickley and Murata mornings here on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader.